And we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and that they come into all kinds of things. That <laughs> uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman slavery by any no, stretch. By but oh God, that's bad. Let them vote. Fuck off. <laughs> when historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm Ed Blaylock. I'm a 45-year-old now, because I've had a birthday, uh, father and history teacher in Northern California. Uh, my son has discovered, uh, while we've been in quarantine, that his very favorite thing to do is kick a ball around the living room, which he thinks is hysterically funny and gives daddy a near heart attack at least... <laughs> two or three times an afternoon. <laughs> How about you? I am Damien Harmony. Uh, I am a Latin teacher up here in Northern California, as well as a history teacher up here in Northern California, um, as well as one half of a very successful pun competition. Uh, I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. Uh, the seven-year-old uh, thinks it's hilarious if I talk like a valley girl. Uh, and the 10-year-old uh, tells me to stop being ridiculous. So I'm living my best life wow. up here in quarantine. That, 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 that sounds so much like both of your kids. It That's does. amazing. It really does. <laughs> so. I, can, I can so clearly hear your son saying, stop being ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And he just he scrunches up his face like, stop being ridiculous. It's <laughs> really cute. So, hey, like, oh my god, yeah, and Julia loves that, it's pretty funny. And, oh, I'm sure and William just thinks I'm being ridiculous, so yeah, well, you know, because you kind of are, which is kind of the point, yeah, but. it's dad life, yo. So, how's quarantine treating you? Uh, well, aside from the cardiac issues being brought on by my son's discovery of indoor soccer, sure. uh, while surrounded by my you know, uh, liquor cabinet and uh, a whole lot of fragile collectibles. Uh, we're doing, we're doing pretty well. Um, Good. <clears throat> we're all holding together. Uh, you know, uh, it's been, uh, today we just had to have the conversation with my mother-in-law who lives in Reno, uh, about, um, the family get together for Easter being canceled. Yes. And, um, that was, was, uh, unanimous between both of, both of her children Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and my brother-in-law both said, yeah, no, we just, we, we can't, we've talked about it and we can't do it. And, uh, she, she was very disappointed and, um, that's in a way that is the first time this has really come home, I think for some members of the extended family on mm-hmm. that side. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, in my own case, like I mentioned a minute ago, I had a birthday, mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, what day is it today? Today's uh, Friday. You know, not quite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not quite, not quite two weeks ago was, was my birthday and, uh, like I'm a, lot a massive, yeah, God, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a massive extrovert, you know, uh, and so normally, uh, my plan for my birthday is something like, all right, we're going to invite, you know, mm-hmm. like everybody in our circle of friends are going to get together, you know, go, go out to dinner, go have sushi, go do something. Mm-hmm. 
And of course that was, you know, not doable. So, um, we, we wound up having a teleconference dinner party, uh, which wound up being massively chaotic and, um, way it's a lot easier to get, you know, 20 people together and hang out in a restaurant than it is to get 20 people together and hang out on multiple, uh, uh, electronic devices right. over teleconference because it's too many conversations going on at once mm-hmm. and each device is basically holding one conversation at a time between, you know, six people. And so, yeah, um, it was that, that was, that was a point at which I think it came home for me Okay, because it's my birthday. Sure. Um, and this was, I think my mother-in-law's moment. Gotcha. That's fair. So, that's kind of the big news on our end. How, how about with you guys? I might be the only person who's thriving under quarantine. Um, I have my kids full-time because their mom's a nurse. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've been really, I mean, I'm, I'm getting them full-time again. It's nice. And she gets mm-hmm. to come by and ride bikes with them to keep social distance. Um, mm-hmm. So we're fortunate that we are amicable enough that that works. Um, and we make that work. I have left the house once in about two weeks. Uh, in order to get stuff from my classroom. I'm going to head back to my classroom next week for a couple extra things because all of California shut down all of its schools for the rest of the school year. Uh, So as far as the... Not not technically entirely correct. My district is still indicating that we plan on going... We we still officially will be going back on May 4th. Oh, good. I'm sure the governor can be overridden by a school district. Well, he well, he recommended he 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 said right. what he said, and the uh, his his officer uh, superintendent of public instruction made a recommendation. Gotcha. But the Solano County, it's still up to the county offices of education and individual districts. And gotcha. my the the county office of education uh, for the county that I am working in mm-hmm. and my particular district mm-hmm. are both trying to find a way to thread a needle on describing this because uh, the language I want to use is is stronger than might be entirely appropriate in this forum um, they're they're both uh, loath to commit to closing anything down mm. and um, I think there are there are a variety of motives uh, at work and I think essentially it's going to it's going to take the county uh, public health office, uh, officially saying, no, no, seriously, shut it the fuck down. Right. Uh, before the Office of Education or my district actually do it. And for whatever reason, that county is one of the ones that has uh, been graded lowest in maintaining social distance and staying inside. I bet. Well, so, so yes, to, to answer your question, how I'm doing uh, during quarantine, I'm rather enjoying yes. my company um, being my children. That works. Yeah. And yeah. uh, I don't know that I've had like a real moment necessarily in terms of mm-hmm. uh, like, oh my God, it's really hit me because mm-hmm. I've just been kind of reveling in my time with the kids. Uh, it's not like there aren't difficulties, but that's true of kids no matter if there's quarantine or not. So yeah. um, I will say this though, uh, I uh, just had a death in the family and I know full well that I won't be able to attend any kind of funerals uh, for the next I don't know till the fall. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah we don't, so, we don't know. 
so that's uh, that. That's probably the realest that it's, or, or the the saddest that it's gotten for me. Um, yeah. No real existential so, terror yet, but okay. Yeah. So so here's so here's a question, and okay. I, I, I'm pretty sure I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask sure. it anyway. Um, on you know personality tests like the Myers Briggs and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, do do you rate as leaning toward introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Very really? much so. Oh yeah, like and I this, and this isn't and this isn't because I'm I peg the needle on extrovert. Oh and yeah. And if if I didn't get if I didn't mm-hmm. get the fuck out of the house mm-hmm. daily, mm-hmm. it I I would I would be I I would have turned into the mom at the end of um uh in, was it inheritance the the possession movie where oh, she where oh, she climbed oh, onto the sea. Yeah, hereditary. I'd mm-hmm. be I'd be climbing the ceiling like some kind of possessed spider thing. Like yeah. I would go completely. Bonkers. I think it's because I have so many irons in the fire creatively right now. I'm dealing with so many different disparate uh, groups of people that I'm getting my interaction on. Don't get me wrong. I'm also okay. calling people and texting people a lot more. Um, but I am getting okay. to interact with folks. Um, just before this recording, okay. actually, we had our inaugural um, capital punishment. Um, on Twitch, uh, so we had an audience of folks watching, and and that was kind of fun getting to perform for them. It's nowhere near as cool as being in person and feeling that energy, yeah. but uh, but yeah. it's still something. So maybe I'm getting by on the diet yeah. version, but like I yeah, said, I no, I, I call it I call it junk food extroversion. Yeah, that's probably it. So I just I probably yeah. am getting by on junk food right. right now. But there's no existential okay. terror for me yet. Um, and, and, and a personal level, speaking of existential terror, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know, what's really popular at times of tremendous uncertainty and, uh, frankly, existential terror, occult sex cults. Oh, probably. I don't know. I, I let my membership um, lapse, so I don't know. Uh, um, powerful stimulants. The odds are high on that one. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, now that I think about alcoholism. it, yes, yes, all of those things actually are absolutely part of the zeitgeist when that's going on. Also, Divorce rate. Um, yeah, but that might be other things happening at the same time, okay. uh, a loosening of, of restrictions on a woman's ability to decide for her own fate might be coinciding with well, those things. So, okay. But also the Twilight Zone. Oh shit! Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so this episode is called "Twilight Zoning Through the Terror." Uh, so for those of you who, <laughs> uh, so for those of you who like to skip the introduction, uh, we're at ten minutes, and you found the title. There you go. So right. yeah, uh, we're gonna. <laughs> did you grow up watching it? I did. Yeah, I did. The black and white um, or the on... color? Uh, both. Usually okay. black and white. Okay. So I grew up watching most of the, most of the episodes. Oh, go ahead. I grew up watching the color. Um, and then when I got older, the black and white showed up on like movie marathons and stuff like that. And I fell in love with all of the above. It was, it was pretty cool. So, you know, I, 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 the, the black and white series was on in syndication on off the top of my head. I want to say channel six in San Diego, which back then was, was, you know, an independent station. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't know if it's even still in business anymore. It might have been absorbed by somebody else. But uh, and yeah, no, the the black and whites white ones were were um, 
like for seven year old me, mm-hmm. they were the closest thing to horror mm-hmm. that I could that I could watch oh, without yeah. it like completely ruining my ability to fall asleep. Because yeah, I've sure. talked about it on, on prior episodes. I've talked about the fact that I'm a complete wimp for horror movies. Yes. Because I have a, because I have a massively overactive imagination mm-hmm. and I, I my the, the the dark parts of my subconscious will latch onto stuff and mm-hmm. and mess me up. Sure. And so the the surreality mm-hmm. of of the original Twilight Zone episodes was creepy enough that it that it gave me that frisson of you know the people sure. get that normal people get out of a horror movie when it just like completely sends me into fight or flight sure but it was not serious enough to give me nightmares keep me awake whatever so yeah, yeah no it was, a, it was a big deal yeah yeah i i remember uh the the isolation of the music for the intro for the color version having a bit of an impact on me although i i'm prone to like th- that that very thing uh isolation of certain chords or isolation of music where it's not just a you know an orchestral thing and suddenly it's stripped down to just one thing that usually messes with me i think i've told you the story of how ruby tuesday yeah. the song really messed me up for sleep um and if not i'll yeah. do it some other time but yeah um, no you've you've yeah. Kind of tangentially. Yeah. Yeah. The Twilight Zone uh, very much had an impact on me and, and it was, you know, family television uh, for me. So yeah. it, was, it was nice. Um, Christmas Day, 1924, uh, Rod Serling, uh, full name Rodman, uh, was born as the second son to a Jewish family in Syracuse, New York. Uh, his okay. dad uh, was previously an inventor of sorts, uh, not a successful one per se. Um, but he also knew enough that when he had two kids that he needed to switch over to something more lucrative. So he became a grocer to provide for his family in a more steady way. Uh, and then, okay, and that's, again, that's, that's 26. Uh, Serling was born in 24. 24. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but then, I mean, okay. you're, you're kind of predicting what's coming up. Uh, the depression hit. Mm-hmm. So his father yeah. then switched over to being a butcher. Uh, and I'm not sure if he was a kosher butcher. I couldn't track that down. But I do know that typically minority ethnic and religious groups tend to be shut out of standard paths uh, first during economic downturns. Uh, and mm-hmm. as, a result, uh, as a result, those communities do tend to cloister up a little bit more. Uh, and, and interestingly, they suffer less overall because of that. It's, it's kind of weird rubber band effect. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's, and it's part of, um, you know, with, with any kind of... Um, you know, uh, religious organization in the United States, religious community in the United States, mm-hmm. you know, the same kind of thing happened with Catholics. Um, right. most especially that was built into the, uh, culture of the Mormon church. Sure. Church of Latter-day Saints. Yes. At the beginning of the organization, you know, yeah. uh, go do, do Mormons, Mormons do business with other Mormons. Right. I had a student who actually was, um, he was one of seven kids. Uh, Now, the first three were born in Afghanistan. The other four were born in America. And the first three grew up very close uh, with me uh, because they were uh, some of my first students. Um, And I had each of them for one more year than the next. You know, I had one kid for, Mm -hmm. well, I had one kid for three years. then, Then his brother I had for three years. And then their brother I had for four years. Um 
And uh, they explained to me that during the beginning of the housing bubble collapse in 2007, they explained this. They said that um, I should look into the Muslims in our area, because they were Muslim, um, and see how they weren't actually suffering that much the way the rest of us were, uh, because they weren't allowed in in the first place. Um, And as a result, they also had to mostly just deal with each other, and charging interest wasn't really a thing. Oh yeah, no, it's not. It's right. I, I'm I'm off the top of my head. I'm trying to remember whether it's outright forbidden or if it's just heavily discouraged. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, there's uh, different branches and different uh, you know yeah. religious uh, schools of and, thought and yeah. different groups. Yeah, but uh, and secondly, they were used to dealing mostly with each other. Like I said, um, now the the dad was the sole breadwinner in that family, and it was a family of nine. And they were doing just fine. I mean, their house was smallish. They had me over for for uh, lunch once. Um, their house was smallish, but like, they were all doing fine. Um, mm-hmm. So their their uh, their dad, Rod Serling's dad, uh, built a stage in their basement for the boys to perform on uh, when they were young. And Rod himself was okay. a precocious child. Uh, his teachers often called him a lost cause. Uh, they called him a class clown. Wait. They called him a dreamer. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. He's that kid. I was I was afraid he was a neo confederate. No, <laughs> no, but he loved wrestling. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I would love to know his thoughts on wrestling because there was one episode where a guy wanted to watch wrestling. That was kind of the MacGuffin of why the TV had to get repaired oh, that yeah. night. Yeah. Um, he ended up having an English teacher around seventh grade who saw what he had to offer actually, and she steered him. Uh, was it she? I forget. Um, but the, this teacher uh, steered him, uh, probably because my seventh grade English teacher was a woman, uh, but they steered mm-hmm. him wisely toward performing. Um, and he ended up on the debate team, and he wrote for the school's newspaper in high school. Now, growing up, Rod loved pulp novels, uh, which uh, I, I never really got into pulp novels. I know several people who really like pulp uh, as its own kind of genre. Um, but he got into it, and he also had a really strong justice from a very young age in social justice. Or, sorry, a strong interest in social justice. I was going to say. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. Um, and so he wrote stories. Well, you know, Jewish, Jewish kid, you mm-hmm. know, in the, in the 1920s, 1930s, it makes sense that he would. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, so he wrote stories uh, that blended these two loves. So social justice pulp. Okay, and and there we kind of have the formula for at least forty something percent of, mm-hmm. of Twilight Zone. Exactly, so certainly the ones he wrote. Yeah. All right. Um, now, while he was in high school, he was actively encouraging people to support the war. This was 1943. That was his senior year. Okay. Uh, he's All in right. New York. He's a Jew. Uh, I'm just saying this so that we can note that Rod Serling himself was Antifa. yes sir um so much so that the day after he graduated from high school he enlisted and he had to be talked into waiting to graduate before enlisting no kidding yeah yeah um i mean i i had i had known previously that he had served but i hadn't realized he was that gung-ho oh very much so um and then and he was a little dude too by the way he was like uh well i mean he boxed and I think he was yeah. a flyweight. Um, and uh, by the way, well, you know, you'll, you'll, 
you look at him on the screen and he's positively elfin looking. That's, I mean, you, know, you know, I guess so. I just, I always, I never really had an idea for how tall he was, but he was only like five, four. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the camera, the, the way, the way they handled the camera was, right. was I think done in a way to make him not look like a short guy. Right. Well, they but, put it on his I, I mean, eye line what? so that you could see from his perspective. Yeah, Standard yeah. trick. But, well, yeah, but but kind of what I more what I meant when I when I was talking about him being elfin mm-hmm. is uh, you know you look at the shape of his face and you look at just his his build. Yeah, He's, true. He was he was a very he was a very very slender. Uh, his his and I mean part of it was was the way he he affected mm-hmm. everything when when he was when he was on camera he was trying to go for kind of that fay. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. Outside of you know, uh, picture if you will, elfin kind yeah. of picture if you will, submitted you know, for your uh, approval. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, and that voice. Mm-hmm. Like how much? How much did he have to practice? I don't know. I think he just smoked a lot. That particular tim- <laughs> Well, okay, because yeah. he was smoking. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So. No, well, everybody was back then. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's not just the the gravel in his in his tone. It's it's the intonation mm-hmm. that he that he got the way the way he manipulated his his tone. Yeah, on those on those syllables, picture mm-hmm. if you will. You know that. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a masterclass in 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 that kind of, of acting. Yeah. Well, and he was he was, and I'll get to this later. He was kind of in that first wave of television. You know, um, perfect true. timing. So That's he, in point. many ways, set the genre and set the tone as far as that voice. Um, now, interestingly, he got his nose broken both in his first and his last fight in in the army. Um, he because he was a boxer. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I still have 18 more than he does, but whatever. Uh, but <laughs> I broke my nose last over the nice. Atlantic Ocean last summer. Uh, so in in May of 19, 19- <laughs> you're looking at me funny. I'm well. How could I not? Yeah, true. What, what did you do? I did nothing. I was like- um, how to put? Um, I was sleeping. But I'm such a big guy that I can't put my head down on the tray table. So the tray table was up, and I was leaning forward on the uh, on the uh, the the seat in front of me, and uh-huh. so the the weight of my head just held the tension there. Well, we hit okay. turbulence, and so oh, Jesus. I smashed the front of my nose <laughs> on the tray table, and I was so damn tired because I was on duty the whole time I was there taking care of kids and stuff. Yeah that I kind of, it was a waking dream. And I was like, ah, whatever, okay. And I went back to sleep. And I got home, uh, like, you know, 12, 14 hours later, um, and went to bed. And the person who was uh, next to me, um, I woke up, I I guess, I I fell asleep on my stomach, which I never do. Uh, You know, they're giving me kind of a light touch massage, which was really nice, helped me calm down. Um, And I fell asleep on my stomach. And then I rolled over, and I guess I paintbrushed my nose. Uh, and I hit the broken part and I shot up like, oh my God. And my eyes were watering and my nose just felt like a gusher of just warm fluid, just rushing down my face. And I shot up out of bed. I was like, oh my God. And she woke up she's like, what, what? I said, I broke my nose. And she's like, just now. And I ran to the bathroom and turned on the light. The problem is when you turn on the light, when you've been sleeping, you're blind. So 
I couldn't see, <laughs> but I could feel on my face all this wet. And I was like, well, yeah. I guess I'm just going to go back to sleep and clean the blood off later. And then I went back to bed and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just going to sleep it off. Um, because that's logic. And then the next morning I woke up and she's like, so you broke your nose? And I looked around. I'm like, where's the blood? And it wasn't. It was a inflammation response where all your mucus just floods. Um, so I just. God almighty. Oh, it was gross. And so, <laughs> and that day later on, because she, she asked me via, via phone. Uh, and she's like, so did you break your nose? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, last night you shot up like you, you know, you, you woke up and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh. Oh, yeah. And then I touched my nose. I'm like, oh, God, that hurts. Yes, I must have broken it. And it was, I was moving it. And I was like, oh, okay, it's disjointed right there. That's going to be a couple. Yeah, it's, but it was the 20th time I've broken this damn thing. So I'm like pretty inured to the pain. And it bothers me that I hit number 20 because like nobody believes you broke your nose 20 times. But if you say 19, they're like, well, that's an oddly specific number. Um, yeah. Yeah, but well, 20 you're you know, like, next, oh, you're rounded up. Actually, next time we're actually face to face, just, you yeah. know, hand me a table leg and I'll fix that for you. You'll be able to say <laughs> you. you want yes. and there we'll you solve that problem. <laughs> I have four table legs in my closet now, so it's good cuz the revolution's yeah, I, I coming. But yeah, he broke his nose uh twice, uh yeah. amateur. Um and in May of 1944, <laughs> he got sent into combat, which is great. Except that he got sent to the Pacific Theater instead of the the European Theater, which was a bummer. Um, now his NCO, well, yeah, mm-hmm. different brand of fascist is all I'm saying. True, but he specifically had skin in the game. Like these are people trying to kill my people, you know. Um, okay, well, yeah, it would be like sending Filipino Americans over to Europe. All right, you know. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's not no, like you get to choose where to go. It's the army, no. but but he wasn't by accounts by his NCO. He wasn't a very good soldier. Um, he was part of a group that was liberating Manila block by block, um, and and one time out uh, under fire, he ran out to rescue someone uh, who had been performing on stage just before the firefight started. Oh really? So yeah, he's got some impulse control issues uh i would i would put him in gryffindor um he spends a lot of the war in the philippines um and after the war and for the fat the rest of his life he would have massive flashbacks and a lot of bitterness about the war now i found an interesting story and i could not um verify it but i've heard it in a couple interviews but I, I, i haven't been able to find the source so take this as illustrative but not necessarily true okay um, okay. But this this tells us something about his war experience. Uh, one day in the Pacific Theater, he was watching a fellow soldier who was entertaining everyone else by goofing around. And everybody was enjoying the break in the action, right? And morale was benefiting. And then a cargo container from their own army um, with the supplies that they needed fell on that man and crushed him to death in front of everybody. Yeah, I remember hearing that story. Yeah, and you might have heard it from me. Yeah, because <laughs> it's it's one I like telling. Uh, yeah, well, I've but. heard it a couple of places. Okay, good. Yeah, um, yeah, and and that is mm-hmm. like a textbook kind of thing that you'd see in uh, Heller. You know, yeah. Catch Twenty Two. Oh, yeah, that's that's yeah. precisely the kind of of you know. You know, when when Heller writes it, it's satire. But when it really actually happens, it's you know, mm-hmm. war is fucked up. Yes, basically. Yes. You know. 
So, yeah. Uh, so the absurdity of being crushed by the thing while you're trying to uplift people's morale, being crushed by the thing that mm-hmm. will uplift people's morale, the contradiction of it all, the severity of it all, uh, inspired mm-hmm. the kinds of stories that he would write thereafter. Okay. So after the yeah. war, he goes to college, he gets a degree, and he starts writing. And according to his wife later on, he wrote 12 hours a day, seven days a week. He just had so much he had to get off his chest. Um, and frankly, his timing could not have been more perfect for the advent of television. I mean, you think about like him getting out of the war. It's 40, 46 probably when he gets into college, right? And he's going to be graduating yeah. probably by 49 or 50. 50. Yeah. yeah. 50, um, maybe maybe yeah. 51, depending. Yeah. yeah. And he writes for a number of shows right away. And he lives in New York. He racks up three Emmys by 1959. Um, that's before he starts The Twilight Zone. He's got three Emmys what, to his what credit. Did he, okay, what, what did he win them for? Uh, there were other... Um, so there were these anthology shows, um, and he would okay. regularly write for them. Um, and he was he was writing stuff that had to do with serious issues and stuff like that. I don't remember the actual okay. specifics about what he won them for, but I know that um, he he kept getting frustrated by the amount of censorship he ran into prior to being um, in the twilight zone. And in fact, it was the, the, you know, uh, what do we call it? The instigating event of him wanting to do the twilight zone was that he kept seeing his stuff. Like for instance, he, um, it, because corporations were, were sponsoring this stuff, right? So yeah, you know, yeah. He, he does a story Paul about, Olive. yeah, you know, he does a story about yeah, yeah. Uh, something in the Chrysler building and Ford is uh, telling him to write it out because they don't want Chrysler mentioned in a show that they're, um, subsidizing, so yeah, or they're sponsoring, right? So um, the the real problem for him, though, is he's trying to take on political issues, um, and a lot of people were, you know, not wanting to touch that. It was the late 1950s, right? So he he took on the Emmett Till murder, um, and Seriously? yeah, and it was about how a town could be so cold and nonchalant about somebody being murdered. He changed some things around, but pretty soon it got changed around so much by corporate, by the network, um, that it was essentially like, I don't even know if they mentioned the word murder, and it was an old man, and he was on the outskirts of town, and nobody in town knew who the old man was. So, I mean, it was like, you know, based on a true story kind of thing. And that was hugely frustrating. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, he got sick and tired of uh, corporate censorship. He got really tired of... Um, sanitizing his own shows. Um, and so he finally ended up with his own creative realm that he created with his own show. This was The Twilight Zone in 1959. Um, okay. He owned the production of it. He hired the writers that he respected for about a third of the shows, and he wrote the other two-thirds. Um, and he was always sneaking in all kinds of social justice stuff because it was sci-fi. And as we've said before, um, there's a ghettoization that happens to certain genres. Sci-fi on television was one of them. Um, well, sci-fi in general is. Yeah. Uh, you know, at some point when, when we get around to talking about cyberpunk, mm-hmm. um, you know, William Gibson uh, wrote a, I don't know if you'd call it an essay or, or if he was something he said in, a, in an interview. But uh, mm-hmm. actually, no, it was, an, it was an essay. It was in, in the introduction to... I want to say an anthology of his own work. Uh-huh. 
uh, short stories uh, that he he stated that science fiction writers are the court jesters mm-hmm. of literature that um, they bring up truths and they bring up ideas that uh, nobody else can get away with bringing them up. Yes. Because they're not taken seriously. Yes. Because, well, you know, he's, he's the Joker. That's what he does. Right. The mockery, the mockery he's doing is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's what he's supposed to do. That's his role. Right. And, and so when a science fiction writer talks about a dystopian corporate hellscape, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and the replacement of, of, you know, limbs with prosthetics, you know, Mm -hmm. lost in wartime, you know, and, um, cyber crime, right. You know, I'm, I'm, since I'm talking about Gibson, that's all the stuff that I'm, that I'm, you know, thinking of as I'm, as I'm using these examples. Sure. But, you know, back in the early 80s, mm-hmm. when Gibson was starting to write this stuff, it was it was like Jules Verne talking about a submarine. It was it was, you know, fantasy. Sure. Um, and, and now we're living in a world where we have a uh, frequent enough. It's 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 uh, uh, no longer entirely worthy of note to see somebody with a pretty advanced prosthetic limb yes out in public because we've been at war for 20 years mm-hmm. and and the technology has come around for those those maimed in those conflicts to mm-hmm. be able to, to have cybernetics yeah. i mean they're not they're not as advanced as the ones described in those stories but still you know and we're living in a political environment where we have you know corporate interests that that are running the almost, show <laughs> Yeah, that that are that are that are you know uh, they're running academia in, too in, immensely. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, yeah, they're running they're running an awful lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, it's almost gotten to the uh, snow crash kind of kind of level. You know, with within if if things don't change within twenty years, we're going to see, you know, corporate sovereignty sure as a thing. You know, and and when all of this stuff was initially published, it was like, oh yeah, man, this is all far out and. Now, yeah. well, that's that's last Tuesday. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, yeah, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna use my smartphone to order my dinner. Yeah, you know, and not ever see the person. Know. They can just leave it, and I can send them digital money. Yeah. God, I kind of want to like, order a pizza now. Oh well. <laughs> so, man, 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 you and me both. I yeah. Tell you what? Uh, so, but yeah, you know, and and so yeah, so so. Do do you know, since mm-hmm. we're talking about that, do mm-hmm. you know, was Serling interested in science fiction for its own sake when he was younger? Or was science fiction kind of the mechanism for him to get away with doing what he wanted to do? It seems like, given his interest in pulp, and pulp does have some of the fantastical in it, very often you have mm-hmm. like wild, wacky stuff. Seems like he just kind of had an interest in it. Uh, I, I didn't see okay. anything where... where it, specifically said oh yeah he jumped into that so he could get away with it um it just was that uh sponsors were a lot less likely and able frankly to point to things that they found distasteful because it was sci-fi um specifically he was taking on the problems that he saw in society on his show and he was getting away with it um and again it's because people including mike wallace 
uh, thought sci-fi was unimportant. Mike Wallace even asked him in an interview, like, so when are you going to do important work? Okay, wait, hold on. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're baking my noodle here. Um, Mike Wallace, as Mm -hmm. in 60 Minutes Mike Wallace. That's the one. Okay. And Mm -hmm. and that interview with Mike Wallace took place in what year? Uh, That was 59 because it was like as the show was getting started. So Mike Wallace was like a junior in high school asking this question for his newspaper? No, he was a very serious journalist. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to have a very hard time getting over the fact that Mike Wallace is actually that fucking old. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, I never thought he was young, but, um, that's, that's, that's a decade or two older than, than I had like been thinking he was. He was born, Mike Wallace was born about six years before Rod Serling. Siri. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I'm. I'm. I, I may need to go to the fridge to get another beer. To, to well, deal with why don't you do that? Because speaking of sponsors, um, yeah. we are still chasing down those sweet, sweet dollars. Uh, so uh, here's a dollar, word. Dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. Hello, Geek Timers. This is Producer George interrupting this podcast to let you know that we have space available. This space could be used to promote your product, book, event, group, even wish a special someone happy birthday. If you're interested in using this space, please contact us on Twitter via private message at Geek History Time. All right, so Colgate, thank you. <laughs> keeping with the, <laughs> keeping with the 1950s theme, Texaco, yeah. we appreciate you. <laughs> yeah. What other like 1950s thank brands you, are there? Thank you, Marlboro. There, <laughs> Chesterfield. I'm getting you Chesterfield oh, for your next birthday. Chesterfield. Yeah. Speaking of Reagan. Um, yeah. All right. So when we left off, Mike Wallace was shitting on sci-fi. Uh, yeah. So October 1959, uh, Twilight Zone debuts. Okay. Um, and this this document that I've written up for this thing is is many, many pages long, but partly because I decided to essentially do a timeline of what's up for each one. So that's probably four of the pages. So in 1959, okay. here's what had happened. Um, and I didn't go back too far into 58, although some of this does stretch back. Alaska and Hawaii become United States. Okay. They, 49, they, 50. There you go. Uh, the Big Bopper, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens die in a plane crash. Uh, interesting side note about that plane crash. Uh-huh. Uh, that air, aircraft, if I remember correctly, was being flown by Wiley Post, mm. uh, who in aviation circles mm-hmm. is uh, remarkably famous for a whole bunch of stuff he did. And to everybody who's not an airplane nerd, that's what he's known for. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he one-eyed? Yes, he was. By, by, by all accounts, he was uh, a a a fitting character for a a picaresque novel. Yeah, uh, I know him because quite, quite, oh. quite the adventurer. I know him because in virtual world where I worked, uh, one of the pods was named after him. 
That's awesome. Yeah. So that's okay. Fitting, the, actually. Yeah. The first Titan ICBM was la- successfully launched, intercontinental ballistic missile. The first Vanguard weather okay. satellite was launched. The Mercury 7 are named. The first American primates get launched into space. The first submarine with a missile gets launched. We lose our first casualty in the Vietnam War. The kitchen debates happen. Um, we launch Explorers 6 and 7. Uh, a whole bunch of really well-known folks die. So have you noticed a theme so far? It's 1959. A whole lot of shit is getting launched. Yeah, a whole lot, a whole lot of stuff going into space. A uh-huh. uh, whole lot of uh, the march of technology, which we've talked mm-hmm. about, uh, talking about Fantastic Four previously. Yes, yes. Uh, that this was the era of you know all of this rapid scientific technological advancement, and and the space race was mm-hmm. was a huge big deal. Yep. Uh, ICBM. I, I find the juxtaposition of the first ICBM launch and the first missile submarine launch. Uh, alongside the kitchen debate, mm-hmm. um, which you know kind of highlights the the nature of the conflict map on the yes. planet at the time. Absolutely, um, you know, and and that that you know exchange that that memorable exchange between Vice President Richard Nixon, yes, and uh, Khrushchev, yes. Do you remember what they were specifically arguing about at the kitchen? It was the kitchen of the new tomorrow, right? Yeah, and and it it I mean the broader themes were about you know prosperity and the and the comfort of the average individual under the way a given that they system. Were, the way that they were proving it though was how their women were treated. So the Soviets, really? yeah, the Soviets are showing off like you know uh, all this stuff, and they're like you know this is you know helping because this is in Russia. As I recall, because Nixon's over there, finger on the chest, right? Or is it the World's Fair in America? I forget. I want to say, off the top of my head, I remember it being the World's Fair in the United States. I think you're right. Okay. But, but, but go on. But Nixon was talking about how this new kitchen of tomorrow is going to make it so that women, uh, their jobs at home are going to be easier. And it's, you know, all this technology is helping the women. Uh, to take care of the homes. And uh, Khrushchev was talking about how our women work because there are equals. And so it's okay. this real interesting, you know, like uh, essentially a war over uh, women. So in, in terms of oh, it's yeah, just well, fascinating. Yeah. Well, what, what I find interesting about that is that, you know, Khrushchev uh, arguing that, you know, well, you know, women are our equals. While, you know, we're talking about, you know, this being July 24th, 1959, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, while you were talking about it, I, I looked it up on, on Wikipedia <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> you were correct. It did happen in the Soviet Union. Yes. Um, give me a second here while I get back into. OK. Uh, series of impromptu exchanges through interpreters between U.S. Vice President Richard Nixon, and Soviet First Secretary Nikita Khrushchev. At the opening of the Nash of the American National Exhibition at right. Sokolniki Park in Moscow, and um, what's what's interesting to me about Khrushchev making that argument mm-hmm. is that you know the the just like in the West uh, during the war everybody had been mobilized and, right. and women had been you know, sent into factories and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. 
And just like in the West, after it was over, mm-hmm. at least under Stalin, women were then, at the end of the war, expected to go back into the house and look after the kids and pump out more babies. Oh, they gave uh, a, a Soviet cross to women who bore more than eight children. Like, they had to fill their ranks again. Like, it, it was they, no joke because they, they lost they needed... a third of the people who died in the war. Oh, yeah. Like, well, their baby yeah. boom was, like, by necessity. <laughs> like... <laughs> You know, <laughs> so so yes, but you must make you you must make whoopee for Mother Russia exactly. But but also <laughs> well, the Soviet Union allowed their women to shoot Nazis and and whatnot and to fly planes well, yeah. and just all kinds of badassery uh, as and as to you own will. Tanks. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. She <laughs> bought her own tank to, to own tanks. Yes, uh, but yes. Uh, so yeah, you have during this kitchen debate, you have you have that argument going. Another thing you have is a whole bunch of well-known people dying in 1959, um, and I bring that up um, not because it's morbid, but because um, there is an aspect to a lot of uh, the uh, Twilight Zone, um, and I'm bringing up a lot of these things because they feed into the Twilight Zone quite a bit of washed-up has-beens. Um, on their last legs and how they're experiencing a rejuvenation of their career or, or, or what deal they have to make with the devil or, or whatnot. So yeah, yeah, here's, you know, I, mm-hmm. okay. That is, that is a recurring theme. I it hadn't, is. I hadn't thought of that before, yeah. but yeah. Here's who died. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille and good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was an asshole. He literally <laughs> killed extras if, if, and filmed it like, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if if there's anybody if there's anybody from the film industry who we can say with near certainty mm-hmm. is in hell. Yeah, it's Cecil B. DeMille, and, yeah. and I only say near certainty because I'm a Catholic, and church doctrine says we cannot know mm-hmm. who's who's in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 if I were a betting man, sure. I would lay money on that one because yes, filmed filmed extras dying was responsible for God knows how many animal deaths. Oh yeah, so he he is he is part of the reason that nowadays there's that that you know notice at the end of the credits in in any kind of any kind of film about you know no animals were harmed. Right. You know this this production was monitored by the by the SPCA. You know. Uh, you know, yeah, they, they refer to that as the DeMille clause in in you know the regulations. Oh, I didn't know that. No, they they don't. Oh, I'm, I'm being, they should. I'm being flipped with that, but they should. Yeah, Carl Schweitzer yeah, died. How... Okay. Um, uh, you may not know him. He played Alfalfa, and he dies in this weird ass violent attack. He gets shot in the groin and bleeds to death as a result of. Because he was going to collect a bill. I, I went down a deep rabbit hole on his death. Um, <laughs> Lou Costello died. Um, oh, man. John Sailing died. Now, he's interesting because he's the last living Civil War vet in 1959. Oh, right. Yeah. Speaking of Wright, right. Frank well, Lloyd Wright. Um, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Speaking of uh, other Hollywood elite who die in weird ways that are violent, George Reeves gets shot to death. Or he killed himself. Oh yeah, it's one yeah, of those we weird things. Yeah, Ethel Barrymore. He was, he was involved. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, there was a uh, a spree killer, um, and I I didn't give his name because I don't like to give the names of murderers, um, even though I named Cecil B. DeMille. 
Uh, but there was uh, a guy who was a spree killer. Uh, he got electrocuted, and his adolescent girlfriend that he took hostage, she was given a life pr- prison sentence. Uh, they had a rampage across the Midwest, as I recall. And he did. if it's yeah, well, yeah, 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 she she was along for the ride. Yeah, but uh, he 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 had yeah, as you say, a spree across the Midwest, mm-hmm. and he is uh, referenced in "We Didn't Start the Fire." Oh my God, you're right. To give everybody a number one, there's an a indication of what what a big what a big deal this was to the baby boom generation, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to give you an idea of who we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, even though we're we're not going to give his name because jerks like that don't deserve the notoriety. Yeah, but it's 1959. He he gets electrocuted. Billy Holiday dies. Bull Halsey dies. Um, the admiral from Midway. Errol Flynn yeah, dies. Yeah. George Marshall of the Marshall Plan, him, he died. And Max Bayer died, uh, who was a Jewish boxer who uh, TKO'd Schmeling. Yeah. And lost to Jim Braddock in The Cinderella Man. You know, that, that whole story? Yeah. Max oh, yeah, Bayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Max Bayer had led to the death of two different uh, boxers. Felt terrible for it, by the way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of important people died. A lot of important okay, things I'm, happened. I want to... Mm-hmm. I want to I want to go back and I just want to say, uh, you know, so George Reeves, mm-hmm. the the original Superman, the original on screen Errol- Superman, yeah, yeah, the original. Yes, you're yeah. right. There were radio radio mm-hmm. actors before, but but the original visual Superman, yeah. George Reeves, and Errol Flynn. Mm-hmm. And what I find intriguing is, you know, the whole the whole situation with George Reeves's death is shrouded in in some mystery to this day. Yep. You know, did he did he commit suicide or was he done in because he was having some kind of affair with a married woman or something was going right, on there? Right. What I find interesting is he's the one mm-hmm. that we know that is that his death is shrouded in. You know, was he done in or was it a suicide? Whereas Errol Flynn, mm-hmm. um, of of all people who w- would have been voted most likely to be shot by a jealous husband. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Or an angry father, for right. that matter. Yeah. You know, uh, Errol Flynn, not that guy. Yeah. Like, wait. Yeah. So, so, I mean, just offhand, that was over a dozen names mm-hmm. that, you, that you handed out. Yeah. So that, that was, there was, there was something going on in the, in the karma that well, year. There's a couple things going that, on there. I mean. We're, we're, I mean, it's 1959, you know, it's, it's uh, alcohol and smoking are a big deal. So that's shortening yeah. a lot of lives. Um, amphetamines are also there. Yeah. Um, and also, Flynn, yes. <laughs> um, but also, uh, you, what you're seeing is kind of the death of the first wave of movie stars, which makes sense if, you know, you, you switch over to talkies in 29. Here we are 30 years later. Which means a lot of these old stars, they're getting close to the average age of death anyway. So, well, yeah, at yeah. that time, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so when when you say the the first wave of movie stars, we're talking about the first wave of talkie movie stars. Yeah, well, you're you're seeing the the transition, like, you okay, know, yeah. Right. Um, now, like I said, a lot of important things were happening. Also, Eisenhower was president. Um, yes. Cuban Revolution took place, led by Che Guevara and later Fidel Castro. 
Um, the United States then recognized Castro's Cuba ahead of the USSR, actually. In Leopold, really? yeah, in Leopoldville in the Belgian Congo, which would soon to be named the DRC, uh, riots started up when the Belgian government didn't let uh, a political party assemble, and it was uh, Abaco. Um, this was a critical set of riots that led to the next year's uh, independence. Um, now it's known as the Day of the Martyrs. Charles de Gaulle becomes president for the first time. Vatican II gets announced. Tib mm -hmm. Tibet rises up against China when China tries to arrest the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama becomes an yep. exile. They find the skull of Australopithecus. Um, Mao, wow. yeah, Mao and Khrushchev meet in China. Space race is kicking mm -hmm. up. The missile race is kicking up. A whole lot of soon-to-be former colonies are starting the groundswell to rise up against their colonizers. So if you just think about what's growing in the ground is a lot of uncertainty, mm -hmm. a lot of old guard dying, a lot of the old way is no longer sustaining itself. It's a generational well, shift. And, yeah, and and what, you know, you talk about Leopoldville. Mm -hmm. and and Belgian Congo mm -hmm. uh, and then and then them gaining their independence from Belgium mm -hmm. the next year um, there's a great photograph uh, in a in a in a book that I've got sitting in my classroom right now where I can't get to it mm. but it's but it's photographs of of events of the 20th century mm -hmm. and one of them is of um, a Belgian official mm -hmm. in full colonial colonial uniform uh, standing in a car waving waving to a crowd right uh, at at the recognition of Belgium's independent and not Belgium of, of Congo's independence mm -hmm. and the photograph is of his back and he is a European white guy mm-hmm in a in a in an immaculate white uniform. Was it of, King Bedouin you know, II? Era. Was it actually the king saying goodbye or no? I don't think so. Okay. I think I think it was it was some some you know vis, uh, viceroy or something. But um, the photograph is not actually of him. Mm -hmm. In the foreground of the photo, the car is the car is pulling away as part of this, as part of this essentially parade. And there is a an African man mm -hmm. in in he looks like a middle class kind of guy in a mm -hmm. in a in a suit and a necktie, but he has stolen the viceroy's sword off of his belt, and he is running the opposite way, holding it up over his head, brandishing it as like as a trophy. Wow. Um, and, and it's an amazing representation of just how much, uh, the Belgians were hated. Oh, it's, I, by, I, by the people of, of, of DRC. I've done a lot of study on the DRC. It's before, during, and after. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, you, you are not understating it by, or you're not overstating it by a long shot. Um, so 59. Oh yeah. Very scary time for Americans. Yeah. Uh, the Russians had already detonated the hydrogen bomb just a few years before. The world is mm -hmm. in a state of flux, and it's spinning in a direction away from American control and away from the status quo. 
which means I need to go back a little bit even before we go forward from there to discuss the Truman Doctrine. And I will probably end this episode with the Truman Doctrine, and then we might get to Rod Serling. <laughs> so, <laughs> as, as is normal. Um, so, the Truman Doctrine uh, was the president's attempt to contain communist expansion in 1947. Okay. It was specifically yeah. a reaction to the battle between fascists and communists in Greece and Turkey. And essentially, Harry Truman argued that the U.S. government had to give aid or the fascists would fall to the communists. Because just north of Greece and Turkey was the Eastern Bloc communist countries. And if the fascists lost, um, then the communists uh, in the USSR, against whom Truman was dead set... Uh, would have two more regional allies. Now, why does Greece and Turkey matter? Because it's the cornerstone to Truman's uh, foreign policy post-World War II, and frankly, during World War II as well. Essentially, the Truman Doctrine makes two very false assumptions right away, begging the question for the next 40 years. The first one, the Truman Doctrine oversimplifies the world into two ways of life only. That's a big error. Um, India proved yeah. that. Uh, but also in doing this, you essentially set up this idea that any government, no matter how awful, as long as it's anti-communist, is imminently preferred to a communist government, no matter how good. Well, yeah, because to to anybody who was a cold warrior... Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to say anybody who had had to deal directly or indirectly with Joseph Stalin. Mm -hmm. um, the struggle between the West and the Soviet Union was Manichaean. Mm -hmm. it, it was because, you know, we, we had been forced to ally with, with Stalin mm -hmm. against, against Hitler and, and the Axis powers. Right. And I think for a generation and a half mm -hmm. of American policymakers, that was a really traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we did what we had to do to defeat the really, like, no, seriously, they're murdering, you know, millions and millions of people right. over their over their religion, over over their ethnicity, over over sure. being, sure. you know, developmentally disabled, whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, find out or, you know, know while you're doing it that the guy you're having to ally with is himself busy starving millions of his own people to death. Yes. For political purposes, you know, and and I think. Um, which you really have to play the that, game, which is more evil. And the answer yeah, is you're really it's more evil to kill people for ethnic and religious and handicap reasons because politics yeah. can change. Well, yeah, and, <laughs> that's yes. that's the gross part. Yeah, is that, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and and but but I think I think the deal is guys like guys like Truman and mm -hmm. then Ike after him and mm -hmm. then and then Kennedy after him. Sure. Um, I I think they really carried the there there cannot be any deal making with these people because we did that before mm -hmm. and we kind of and and we have this blood on our hands because of it. Yeah, you know what I mean, and I'm and I'm not I'm not trying to say that as as like an excuse. 
But right, as, but that is an explanation. As, as, as kind of the psychological explanation for where it is that Truman, who by all accounts was a pretty level-headed guy, he was, could wind up... I was going to say, could, could all of these guys... Developing a doctrine like that. All of these guys, though, made their bones uh, in the age of the Palmer Raids, in the age of anti-anarchism and the age of anti-red stuff so you know keep in mind that the soup that they were they were cooking in was also virulently and irrationally anti-communist so that's also a thing but you're you're not wrong i think that you know it's kind of like um when i think one of the worst things for the second red scare was that they found alger hiss (laughs) like when you found actual spies then all your paranoia is retroactively justified yeah, and and, yeah. and you can get away with, with, with whatever the fuck else you want to do after that right. because, well, we found one. Right. Like, they're really doing it. You know, and I mean, it is it is true. We do know now, mm-hmm. long after the Cold War is over, sure. we do know that the Soviets were, you know, had, had sleeper agents in the United States, that they were paying people here to do, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to, to do dirty tricks kind of stuff. And so for anybody who's still... You know, mm-hmm. a diehard anti anti communist anti whatever they can they they have that ammunition. The problem is they have right. that ammunition, right? And and that that kernel of truth makes it a lot easier for them to try to get away with then spinning shit around that because mm-hmm. they can that, always that point much to harder that. to refute. Yeah, that's why Stalin they, they murdering so many millions of people becomes the justification for why we can't ever do this. And therefore, um, once communism is defeated, these fascists can be reformed. So bigger picture is what the Truman Doctrine is saying to to look at. That's what they were saying. That was their argument in the Truman Doctrine. We have to side with these fascists because they'll help us defeat the communists. And once we defeat the communists, then we can turn around and deal with them. Um and that's so it's world war ii in reverse yeah it really is um and further anytime communism pops up anywhere squash it and that'll contain it and then you can squash it where it already exists um and then the reforms can come and so it's this tiered system of responses now that's the first assumption that it makes that doesn't work the second one that it makes that doesn't work is that it assumes the Truman Doctrine assumes that the natural state of the world is an orderly state. Therefore, any threat to order in the world is a threat to American security everywhere in the world. Therefore, every threat becomes an existential threat, and there's no tier of concern. There's no, like, rainbow of doom, even. It's <laughs> just... <laughs> and And so by... <laughs> Enacting don't this, don't even have a rainbow of doom. Right, don't even have color codes. You fucks. Yeah. So, by enacting this doctrine, the U.S. government under Truman, a Democrat, assumed that America had the power and the means to maintain that alleged order. So, those are the assumptions that it goes into, and that's 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 the Truman doctrine. And then you get into NSC sixty-eight, which is a National Security Memo. Number 68, that got handed to Truman uh, in 1950. Um, And it was because China had stepped in on the Korean conflict because MacArthur went too far. Um, He fired MacArthur, but China was involved. And uh, then we had Alan Alda, which I I think it was worth it. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll allow that. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I'll, I'll buy it. So the NSC sixty eight further entrenched the fear of disorder in the world because look what could happen. And now disorder not only is a threat existentially, but it also invites subversion. Which means now if there's disorder anywhere in the world, we have to look out at home because America's interests are now anti-subversion interests and anti-disorder interests. And the result is that every interest is now a vital interest. So it's no longer about geography and politics and alliances. It's about disorder. Now, all of that is the Truman Doctrine and it leads to an overreach, as we've just seen, which then leads to institutional paranoia as the norm, and common sense becomes subversive. Well, and and beyond that, mm-hmm. the moment we start acting that way, mm-hmm. you know, because we, we were being paranoid in, in the way you just described, mm-hmm. like, you know, disorder anywhere is a threat to us everywhere. Mm-hmm. The Russians... Uh, I mean, in the time period we were talking about, they're the Soviets, but let's get real. It's the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, since since the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. they've been they've been perhaps rightly uh, paranoid that everybody's out to get them because you know they've been invaded God knows how many times. Right. And uh, so their whole take on I mean, since since Stalin, since right. Lenin originally, but. But especially since Stalin, yeah, Stalin really pushes and then into, this. Yeah, and then and then into Khrushchev and into you know everybody up up through the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their stance was we have to push this this subversion. We have to to get as many nation states as we can to join the international to become mm-hmm. you know Soviet. Um, you know, to, to, to join us on our side of the ideological divide, uh-huh. because the more of them we have, they're our buffer. Now and, and I would, it was, it was, go ahead. I was going to say, I would agree with you when it comes to places near their land, but mm. Stalin actually canceled the international. He flat out told him, he's like, we're not going to support you anymore, but Soviet security was viewed in terms of territory because they'd been invaded twice in, you know, two wars. American idea of security was oh, and, institutional. And, and long before that. Well, yes. Long before that. Yeah. Been, yeah. That's a good point. But, but modern yeah. Soviet security was yeah. based on land. And if you have all these buffer states, the Eastern Bloc, then the Soviets have time to mobilize. American yeah. which security is, which was... Is where we're talking, which is where we're talking about Turkey and Greece. Right. Right. And, whereas, the other, and the other states around the Baltic in that area. Yeah. Whereas American security is much more about institutional agreements and treaties and stuff like that because we were lucky enough to have two i two two oceans on either side of us so it's much more about alliances well yeah yeah but but you know then then you look at you know soviet involvement in mm-hmm. in uh vietnam you look at soviet involvement in in other other insurgencies that we were you know one way or another either fighting a proxy war through somebody else against mm-hmm. or or that we we you know talk about Vietnam mm-hmm. obviously uh, you know and their their take on it was well you know um, if we it keeps the Americans busy 
It, yes, yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah, the, the Truman the Truman Doctrine created a situation where the Soviets had a really easy way to go. Well, you know, all we have to do yeah, they just clap over here, guy. and we have to run over there. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, we we hand these guys a pack of matches, and they're going to send their entire fire brigade. Mm-hmm. Like, there is easy. something to that. Like, yeah, this is this is fucking clown shoes. We can do this all day. Like. You know. Yeah, and it was relatively cheap, too, because while at the same time that's happening, they're also shoring up their borders and strengthening the buffer states around them and just being like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's enough. Um, well, I mean, at this point, they're, they're in the process of reinforcing the Iron Curtain, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about 59. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, this institutional paranoia gets into every facet of life. Um, and the government that previously had either been laissez-faire or taking pretty decent care of people, uh, especially the creatives, um, now it's looking into every association you ever had, every rally you've ever been to, every donation to every cause you've ever made, and your life could be in ruin for the fact that you supported a group once or went to a meeting once and got kicked out for arguing with them, but it doesn't matter, um, or you organized a canned food drive to help the USSR fight against Nazi Germany. Like that all happened to people and the government was doing it. So there's this institutional paranoia where common sense doesn't stand a chance. Oh, yeah. Well, and and that was 50 to 54. Mm-hmm. So that is, is the height of is the height of McCarthyism and, mm-hmm. and HUAC and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So by the time Serling is setting up his playground. Yep. That is that is over and and in the recent past, but it's still it's in recent memory and still very much in recent memory. And actually, it goes through fifty six. I know that McCarthy gets shut down, but that doesn't mean HOAC yeah. stopped. Um, That's so you know, uh, artists are always on the front line of culture wars, uh, and when they are, they find creative ways to push back. So in fifty three, the Crucible comes out, and makes its stage oh, debut. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to use broad brushes here. Arthur Miller looked at what was going on with the government and the institutional paranoia throughout the world, and not just in America, but in Western uh, Europe as well. And he decided, I need to make an allegory here. And there had actually been a similar play that played in West Germany in 1949 about the Salem witch trials as well. Uh, Its playwright, uh, I'm going to fuck up his name, uh, Leon uh, Fuchtwanger. Um, It looks like Fuchtwanger. Well, you know, it's German, so right. everything looks like fucked something. That's true. But he had been similarly harassed. And in 1956, HUAC brought in Arthur Miller to testify before the committee, and they held him in contempt of Congress for refusing to name the names of people that he'd attended meetings with. Because life imitates art, and none of them had read the definition of irony. Now that's... That's not, I mean, really, they brought him before a court and told him to name names, and he didn't. He Giles Corried the fuck out of them. Um, More. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> you know, that was 56. Uh, now, by that point, also going on in America, plenty of civil rights protests and activity had been underway. Um, and Sterling or Serling was really big on this. Um, but it is part of the background of what's going on, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. I'll just say that, again, broad brush, a lot of activists are being arrested, jailed, beaten, and accused of communism on billboards in the South. Uh, and the idea was that American strength in, uh, against communism necessitated creating a consensus 
And if you point out systemic racism and abuse, then that runs counter to the consensus that we need to defeat communism. Therefore, pointing out the places where we're not living up to our ideals uh, is unpatriotic all of a sudden, and you become a traitor for it. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Uh, next episode, right. I'll actually talk about Rod Serling, uh, <laughs> his career on the Twilight Zone. So, keeping in brand, uh, here's the thing that I'm going to talk about in the next episode. So, so far, um, is there anything to glean, or is this just kind of a lot of background uh, information uh, for it? I don't want to say just, because I think this is good research. Um, well, it, it is good research. I, I think it is. it is a lot of background stuff, mm-hmm. but I think... I do have a takeaway from it all. Do it. Um, and, and it's, it's kind of a, a, you know, big, big picture emotional kind of takeaway Mm -hmm. that, um, I had not, I had not thought of the extent to which, um, American society and popular culture Mm -hmm. was, um, separately from, the specter of nuclear Armageddon, which we've talked about previously, mm-hmm. you know, but, but just the, the sudden shift in the entire world is changing and it's happening really fast. Yeah. You know, on, on, not, not, not on a technological level, although that's there, oh, it's but there, just, yeah. just the, but, but on, on the level of the bedrock of this is what we all grew up seeing the world looking like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the pink, the amount of pink on the map yes. of the world yes. is, is suddenly shrinking rapidly, which is a bigger mm-hmm. deal in the UK, but even to us anyway, it's like, well, you know, but that's the British empire. Not anymore. Any, right. You know, and, and European powers who are to middle-class white Americans who were mm-hmm. the dominant cultural force, uh, you know, the people who look like us are mm-hmm. suddenly seeing this, this rapid reduction in their influence and their power worldwide. Yes. You know, yeah. and, and the ways in which that could subconsciously create kind of a siege mentality you kind of start to understand obliquely um, why people have the voting patterns that the way they do. Yeah. Because if you've been baked in a world of dominance as your group being dominant as the norm, mm-hmm. as soon as another group like pushes back against that, you're like, whoa, why are you upsetting the natural order of things? Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. that's... And, and, you know, and, and then talking about that, you know, within mm-hmm. the context of our own lifetimes, mm-hmm. um, I'm reminded of, you know, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. All of this has happened before and all of this will happen again, which, you know, could be a, a sub subtitle for our show along with authorial intent don't mean shit, you know. <laughs> all uh, of this was unintended before and all of this will be unintended will be again. Unintended again. <laughs> Except Rod Serling actually meant this shit. So oh, yeah, no. Rod, Rod Serling, yeah, Rod, Rod Serling never met an anvil he didn't like. Yeah, um, true that. You know, so um, right. well, th- this particular pattern on the wallpaper repeats. Yeah. So, where yeah. can people find you on the social media? 
on the social media, um, I can be found on Twitter at EHBlaylock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on uh, Instagram, I believe I'm there as MR, as in Mr. Blaylock. Huh? And uh, they can find both of us mm-hmm. on uh, at uh, Geek History Time mm-hmm. on uh, the Twitter. And where can they find you, sir? Well, there's a couple places you can find me nowadays. Uh, first of all, you can find me at Duh Harmony. That's two H's in the middle uh, on the Twitter and on the Insta. Uh, you can also find me twitching, uh, which sounds weird. Um, but I'm now twitching with my uh, my Capital Punishment uh, group. If you go to twitch.tv forward slash Capital Puns, uh, you'll be able to find our channel there and see us slinging puns every Friday night. Um, yeah, at 8.30 uh, every time. And I think that hopefully by the time this episode airs, we will have done probably six weeks worth. So uh, Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. So yeah, that's that's where you can find us. Um, well, for a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s. <laughs>